Hello, everybody. Daniel and Todd here. I'm back for the second installment of an extremely interesting discussion with Stacey Eastland. The episode is titled C-Corporations, S-Corporations, Partnerships, and Limited Liability Companies, Planning Opportunities, and Special Consideration. We've already discussed using family offices to work around the suspension of miscellaneous itemized deductions under 212, factors that the IRS may consider when reviewing a family office structure viewed in light of lender, and the advantages and risks associated therewith. We also jumped into Beneficiary Deemed Owner Trusts, where the beneficiary is given the power to withdraw net taxable trust income, or the deemed income tax owner, and the trust is disregarded for income tax purposes. These are all complex, practical issues of which any wealth planning professional should at least be aware. Todd, I'll pass it over to you to continue our conversations with Stacy. Well, thanks again, Daniel. And uh, Stacy, thanks so much for joining us here. You know, really fascinating stuff in the first installment. And we're going to continue with some 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 additional fascinating uh, applications uh, in the second installment. So uh, just to jump right into it, uh, Stacey, you've talked to us about preferred partnerships. You've talked to, to us about different uh, applications with respect to C-corporations. Uh, why don't we shift to some applications for planning with S-corporations? Uh, and let me hand it over to you. Thank you very much, Todd. Uh, it's been my pleasure to do this. Uh, one very interesting idea, I'm going to go through it very quickly, uh, but it can be a very powerful idea in certain situations. Uh, the first time I heard it, it's from the late, great Lenny Goldberg. And one of the interesting things about subchapter S corporations under Section 1377A1, there's a per share per day rule. Um, and unless the shareholders of the uh, sub-S corporation agree differently. And that maybe can set up a great planning opportunity to shift value from the older generation to the younger generation. So let me give you an example. Suppose the matriarch, I'll call her Mary, owns 95% of the company, and her son, Marvin, owns 5% of the company. And maybe the percentage interest uh, change because of uh, certain things you worry about with fringe benefit rules and so forth. But let's just say the dominant owner is Mary. Suppose in order to keep Marvin from leaving the business and giving him an incentive um, uh, and to give him an incentive, a very popular employee benefit plan is non-qualified stock options. And it's very popular from the uh, point of view of the employee because he's, in effect, getting an interest-free loan uh, from uh, the company, if you want to think of it in that way, and he's participating in the equity of the company uh, with this interest-free loan, Um, and if it's also more or less a non-recourse loan. But the problem with non-qualified options, if they're very successful, is that you have to pay on that differential if the option is successful, ordinary income taxes. Well, let's go back to this sub-S. What if in the early days of a particular tax year, there's a buy-sell agreement with respect to Mary, and you take into account a lot of factors, including this contingent liability that the company has of paying Marvin under that non-qualified option. That could lower the value that you would otherwise have to pay for Mary's stock under the under the formula of the buy-sell agreement. And that contingent liability, let's just assume that Mary decides, pursuant to that buy-sell agreement, to have her stock redeemed by the corporation or purchased by Marvin under that buy-sell agreement. So now Marvin owns 
100% of the stock in the early days of January. And after he owns 100%, he cashes in his non-qualified option. Well, under the per share per day rule, most of that option, he will have obviously income from that, but it's most of it is offset under the per share per day rule as a deduction to that corporation. And so values shift almost on an income tax-free basis with this interest-free loan, the way the dynamics work, over to Marvin. And it can be a very powerful idea to shift wealth, besides getting rid of the only negative aspect of a non-qualified option, that is, if it's successful, it's taxes, ordinary income. Todd, what do you think? Well, that's very uh, very interesting, Stacey. The, the one thing that uh, you mentioned, and I just want to explore this a little bit, is for transfer tax purposes, when you're getting into buy-sell agreements uh, between family members, you need to take into consideration uh, the possible application of Section 2703. Um, and that traditionally has been you know, considered both an estate tax as well as the gift tax provision. Here, the application of it, if 2703 would apply, would be in the gift tax context. And I'm just interested in your thoughts with respect to the recent Crest case, uh, which is a district court case. And, you know, interestingly, the the district court uh, in Wisconsin had said that, well, the second prong, the device prong of the exception to Section 2703 uh, did not apply in the context of lifetime transfers because they really parsed through the statute and said, well, the regulations use a broader term, objects of one's bounty, whereas the statute talks about the term decedent. And the court said, well, because the term decedent is used, it's clear on its face that it was intended to be an estate tax uh, provision, or at least that exception, the device prong of the exception, was intended for estate tax purposes. What do you think about that, Stacey? Yes, increasingly, uh, looking at the tea leaves of some recent Supreme Court cases, uh, they're sort of adopting what I call the Justice Scalia method of when when Congress is very clear in a statute, the seat is a relatively clear term, uh, the, then the whether it's EPA or the Treasury Department, you can't issue a regulation that's clearly contradicted by the plain wording of the statute. And, and so maybe it was inadvertent. Who knows? Uh, but that's the job of Congress to correct it, not the courts. And increasingly, that's the way the courts are going. So I think that always planned like maybe the court wouldn't rule out the device test and try to do it in a comparable manner. But uh, that's certainly a great argument to utilize. It's an, it's an interesting evolution. Uh, because, you know, many of the or a handful of the cases before have applied 2703 in the lifetime transfer context. And this seems to be an interesting development. So, Stacey, maybe we can switch to some more partnership tax applications. I know you've talked about it quite a bit in the family context. How about some of the things you can use partnerships for in the non-family context? And maybe even that might have some family planning uh, advantages as well. Yes, and so this, this uh, what I'm about to go into about the income tax advantages that exist with partnerships um, when you have single assets in a partnership, 
uh, where you can diversify and either defer the income tax or, in some cases, eliminate the income tax that would be associated with the diversification. And as I go through this, if the listener can keep in mind, we're always looking for investment reasons for utilizing partnerships because if there's a valid investment reason for using the partnership, then that's very helpful to combating Section 2036 arguments in the family context. So I'm going to give a little tax history here. In the early 1980s, there were a series of cases, I'm going to exaggerate a little bit, where one partner would put in cash into a partnership, another partner would put in a low basis stock into the partnership, and let's just suppose they found that they were incompatible with each other, and after about a year, they decided to terminate the partnership, and surprise, surprise, the fellow who put in the cash got the stock, and the fellow who put in the stock got the cash, and the service came along said, well, you know, we're not, we might have been morning night, but not last night. That's a disguised sale. And a lot of situations maybe weren't as bad as what I've just illustrated, but the service lost a lot of these cases. And so Congress came along in the 80s and said, look, let's just have some mechanical rules. And if you comply with the mechanical rules, then the presumption will be that it wasn't a disguised sale between when you formed the partnership and terminated the partnership. So when these rules are developed, one rule is a two-year rule and one year is a seven-year rule, and I'm just going to summarize it this way. If you form a partnership and you have low basis assets going into that partnership and you do not terminate it for more than seven years, then the presumption is that the creation of the partnership and the termination were done for business purposes. So investment banks, like the one I work for, have taken that concept and they have formed what we call exchange funds, where a lot of different clients will put in low basis assets. Um, we may borrow some money and go and we'll become a partner and buy some real estate in order to solve the 721 problem. And so we have these exchange funds, and they stay around for about seven years, and then they're terminated, and the client gets a diversified portfolio without having to pay any capital gains tax. Now, there's some downsides when, when an investment bank like Goldman Sachs does that. You'll have to pay a fee. You might not like the portfolio uh, that you end up with, and so you'll have to sell some of the assets if that's the case. So let me take, is there a way we can do it where we have a private partnership and do that? And I think the answer is yes. So let me give you an example. Suppose we have Betsy Boss Daughter, Sonny Single Stock, and Sam Single Stock, the patriarch. And he has 85% of the partnership, and it has a single stock that's zero basis or near zero basis. It's two children have 15% interest each. And maybe because of 2036 concerns, the children have been the general partners for a number of years. But for various reasons, you're thinking about terminating the partnership. It's more than seven years old. Maybe for state tax reasons, you're thinking about doing it. But before you do that, because you're not trying to get the discount anymore, think about the opportunity <coughs> that may exist under the part tax accounting rules. Here's the opportunity. 
let's assume in this partnership between the single stock family that we have 10 million of stock and because Sam has put in 85% of the stock and the kids have put in 15%. What if you go out to a third party bank, the partnership does, and borrows a little under $6 million in cash and then the partnership invests, let's just say in real estate investments, big cash flowing real estate investment that may exist. So now the partnership owns the roughly $6 million in real estate. Uh, it owes roughly a $6 million note to the third-party bank, and it still has the $10 million of the low-basis stock. At this point, perhaps Sam is bought out, and maybe he's bought out for a discount. Let's just say the discount's roughly 30%. And if you do the math, he should receive an asset that's a little under $6 million based on that discount. What if the asset he receives when he retires from the partnership is that new real estate investment that obviously has a cost basis equal to $6 million because that's what the partnership paid for it when it borrowed the money to pay for it. So Sam gets a $6 million asset. What is Sam's basis in that real estate investment? It's going to be zero because that was Sam's outside basis. And so the real estate investment, instead of having in Sam's hand a $6 million basis, now has a near zero basis. But, of course, Sam, if he holds on to it and dies at some point, will get a step up in basis on that $6 million real estate investment, and there will be no capital gains tax if the executor sells that real estate investment. So where does that investment, that when it went down to zero, where does that basis go? Well, it goes under the tax accounting rules to that $10 million worth of stock that's owned by the partnership. Now Betsy, uh, Boss Sutter, and Sonny are the only owners. They now have, instead of a zero basis in that stock, they have a $6 million basis and they still owe uh, the bank $6 million. Well, if they, at that point, decide to terminate the partnership or at a future time and sell the stock, they'll have a capital gains tax on roughly that $4 million. They'll use the part of the $10 million proceeds. They'll kick it out, and they'll each pay a capital gains tax, and then they'll pay off the bank. Well, when you look at the math, it's just phenomenal. It, it From the perspective of uh, Betsy and Sonny's collective net worth, assuming we have a 23.8% capital gains rate, after capital gains taxes, uh, their net worth will increase by almost 171% with this buyout for discount of SAM, giving him the high basis, now low basis asset, and they get the step up. And so using these tax accounting rules, if, if you're thinking about terminating partnerships, please look at the opportunity that could exist under the tax accounting rules. So there's a lot of conversation about terminating some of these old partnerships. Before you do so, see if this opportunity exists. The second thing I would say is that in this situation, it's not uncommon 
Many times we form family partnerships with low basis assets. The reason why the client has an estate tax problem is because its assets have appreciated. You can divide these partnerships up before you do these transactions, and that can be done in a tax-free manner. At any rate, there are really great income tax opportunities with partnerships that don't exist with sub-S corporations, that don't exist with right. C corporations. And so you can argue to the IRS, look, we had this low base of stock. We thought maybe sometime in the future we'd want to diversify under the mixing bowl rules. And you really don't have that opportunity except with this structure. So very interesting stuff, Stacey, there. And, you know, outside of the scope of today's discussion, but you had mentioned a couple times that, uh, you know, uh, some of the families will have family limited partnerships out there and they may be thinking of liquidating uh, or, or, or changing it in some manner, presumably in response to some of the uh, developments with Section 2036 and Powell uh, and some of the other cases, Cahill. Um, but very important point that before you pull the trigger on liquidation of it, you want to think about the partnership tax implications and, and perhaps opportunities like you've highlighted. The other thing, uh, perhaps you could talk to us about some other applications, maybe using a preferred partnership to obtain the stepped-up basis in the senior generation's hands when they eventually pass. Uh, and, you know, this goes back to our first installment with Section 2701 compliant vehicles. Yes, and so you could take a simple situation uh, in which the client has preferred and growth interest in a partnership, uh, maybe do some estate planning to get the growth part of the partnership out, and, and the basis that will be allocated to his preferred when he dies you would, you would get a step up in basis, and you'd have to pay estate taxes on that. But you get a step up in basis, and if we've had a lot of appreciation, uh, when, when you look at all the overall capital gain savings, uh, even if the preferred is taxable in the client's estate, um, then, then uh, perhaps it takes some of the sting out of the estate tax. So is there a way maybe where we can take it another further degree up where we can get a step up in basis um, and, and yet not have much of an estate tax concern. One of the things to think about, and if, if we could get to a place where a client had on the asset side of his ledger when he's filing his estate tax return, the executor is, to where he owned a preferred interest, but the client had a fair amount of debt that's owed back to the partnership, and if that's the case, then we could deduct that debt for estate tax purposes. And even though the client doesn't have a big net estate, um, he, he, uh, he's in a great position to argue for a step-up in basis. And so many times there'll be real estate developers and other folks will, will have significant estates but a very low basis. And so what... One thing that might consider, and you got to consider unitary basis rules, and maybe what I'm about ready to say, you can, if at some point you get to where the non-grantor trust, uh, excuse me, the grantor trust becomes a non-grantor trust that owns a growth interest, uh, this may really work. And so, suppose we have Zelda zero basis, and she has about five million in cash and sixty million in zero basis assets. And she wants to do something where we get gets a step up, but also saves estate taxes. What if she created by going out and borrowing some money, 
having preferred and growth assets. She then does the classic planning, maybe using grantor trust, to get a lot of the growth interest out of her estate uh, that, that she has used with the money that she borrowed for the growth interest. And then that trust turns into, it's a grantor trust, turns into a non-grantor trust. At that point, maybe she could borrow money and she owes money to the bank when she put it into the limited liability company. What if she borrowed some money from that limited liability company and paid off the note to the bank? And so when the smoke clears, what her balance sheet looks like, she has a preferred interest with a significant coupon, but she owes money when she refinanced that debt she owed. She owes money back to that same HOLCO. And so by doing this planning over time, it's classic estate freeze planning, she's in a position that she has plenty of cash flow because of the arbitrage between the preferred interest and the note she owes back to HOLCO, but she has a relatively modest estate size, and she gets a step up if a 754 election is made on the preferred interest. In fact, the, uh, one example, using that example, if we borrowed $45 million or so, eventually got that growth interest out of the estate, it's a pretty cool when you look at the math that for every $1 of exposure to estate tax, under those facts, you would have an almost $4 increase in the basis of the asset. And so that's maybe one way you can use these partnership tax accounting rules. You have to think through all the rules, but just doing classic freeze techniques with, with by borrowing cash to have a growth interest and then eventually paying off the borrowed cash by borrowing from the entity, you can maybe have, uh, maybe you can maybe solve for that problem, which is a difficult yes, problem. The client that has a low basis asset. It's a really interesting application to, to not only freeze the preferred interest in parents' estate, but also get the stepped-up basis, and then at the same time transfer away the common growth interest maybe into a GST-exempt uh, multi-generational trust. Uh, another interesting possible application with this is some of the estate planning applications that are formulating right now with respect to um, interest in qualified opportunity funds, because we know that the, the proposed regs anticipate that you can have a preferred and common uh, partnership entity as your uh, qualified opportunity fund entity. And at the same time, we know from the second tranche of regulations that gifts of interest into grant or trust, at least, will not be considered acceleration events or inclusion events for these purposes. And so perhaps one of the applications with a preferred partnership is you have the QOF structured as a 2701 compliant preferred partnership, a common interest by gift into a grantor trust. Now, what you have there is after a 10-year hold, uh, you don't have any capital gains tax uh, when that interest is eventually sold. So you could almost get the best of both worlds where you get the freeze, but you also get the stepped-up tax basis in the donee trust by virtue of the 10-year hold to the QOF interest. So uh, you and I should chat further about that at some point, Stacey, and uh, I'm sure there's plenty more applications there that, uh, that you'll be thinking of.
Right, and and just to simplify what I've, I've said, just think about it this way. If you have low basis real estate, borrow against it. Now you have cash. Do your state planning with the cash. Forget about this partnership idea. Just do your state planning. Maybe the partnership's part of the state planning with that cash that's out of your state. Well, you've borrowed that money from a bank. And maybe what you do at that point is borrow the money from that entity that you got out of your state. And, and so you pay off the bank, but you still have that loan outstanding. It's just to your family now. And right. and that's okay. And and you could charge a relatively high interest rate, or they could. You don't have to worry about the AFR rules. Just make sure you have enough of arbitrage that the patriarch can can survive. So anyway, those really are great, those interesting ideas. I think that's a clever idea you have, Todd. Well, uh, I'd love to continue to our our discussion on that, Stacy, and some really some really great uh, applications here. So I think you're going to end here with uh, one last application uh, with respect to a 678 trust. Maybe you can walk us through this before uh, we wrap things up. Right. And so one 678 trust that's right in the statutes is a qualified subchapter S trust. Visits, however you want to pronounce that. Um, and it's and, and the way those are, if you have a trust in which a person has an income right, in other words, to receive the accounting income in the trust, and if it owns subchapter S stock, that person is taxing all the income. Uh, none of the income is taxed at the trust level. So one of the dilemmas that a lot of people have, you reach someplace between 12,500 12, to 13,000, you're at the top bracket for a trust. Is there a way to cut down those income taxes if we have beneficiaries or lower brackets? Well, one way is simply distribute out the income to beneficiaries, and and it would go to them. The trust would get a deduction under the uh, DNI rules, et cetera. The problem with that is those beneficiaries then get the cash, and beneficiaries can die. They can get divorced. They can leave it in a way that's not compatible with how the trust was worded, you may lose generation skipping benefits if you make those distributions. So here's the idea. What if part of the assets of a complex trust are dropped down to a sub-S corporation for the beneficiary? Just to simplify it, let's assume we have one beneficiary of this trust. Many times in the boilerplate of the trust document, or certainly you can go into the court and get it, uh, reform is that part of the assets that go into a sub S, you now have quisit provisions, a qualified subchapter S trust for that investment. And the beneficiary is the only income beneficiary. Well, in managing that sub S corporation, maybe a lot of the income that's earned by the assets in that sub S corporation are accumulated at the corporate level. The income taxes on that accumulation are all going to be paid by the beneficiary of the qualified subchapter S trust. Maybe what's kicked out is just enough so the beneficiary can pay income taxes. So the beneficiary is only entitled to accounting income, not the income that's necessarily earned by that subchapter S corporation. And so in that fashion, 
we have much lower taxes on the assets of the trust because some of it's being accumulated in sub S corporation that the beneficiary has to pay the taxes on. It can also help solve 1411 problems if the beneficiary, if we really do have operating assets, if the beneficiary is participating in the business, the 1411 tax should not apply. And as, as I thought, I think both of you and I agree that uh, in many cases the trustee should be able to avoid that 1411 tax of the closely held business, but the IRS isn't there yet. And so this may be a way to solve that problem too. And it's simply taking a complex trust, dropping some of the assets to a sub-S corporation, and then having that part of the trust under the Quisset rules, the Qualified Subchapter S rules, and doing the managing of the income down at the corporate level. Well, once again, more, even more clever ideas that you keep coming up with, and uh, you know there are plenty more in, in your various materials um, uh, that uh, that you have out there. So, thanks so much for uh, for part one and part two. We've covered so many interesting applications with respect to C corporations and preferred partnerships and pro rata partnerships and S corporations and ways to various uh, various different ways to combine them. So really. Really valuable, really creative stuff, uh, Stacey. So thank you so much uh, for sharing with us your time and your wisdom. Uh, and uh, we uh, look forward to uh, having you on again for another Conversations on Wealth. Uh, so, Daniel, if I can hand it off to you. Yes. Uh, Stacey, we cannot thank you enough for such an interesting discussion. We really enjoyed it. Uh, this is definitely an episode that can be listened to over and over in order to better and more fully understand wealth planning with corporations, pass-throughs, and trusts, or to learn new possible techniques for our clients. To our audience, we hope that you enjoyed our conversation with Stacy and that you learned something that may help you in your practice. We hope you've had a chance to listen to our pilot episode with Steve Akers on hot topics in wealth planning. Conversations on wealth episodes, including this one with Stacy Eastland, are and will be available under the Jumpstart Bloomberg Tax Series. We look forward to future conversations with the industry's leading practitioners on complex wealth planning issues.